here is an empty world. This is nothing. And really, it was uncommonly like nothing. There was no stars. It was so dark, it made no difference whether you kept your eyes shut or opened. The air was cold and dry, and there was no wind. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice began to sing. It was very far away. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes it seemed to come almost from the earth beneath. There was no words and hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise you had ever heard. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. One moment there had been nothing but darkness, the next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. The new stars and the new voices began exactly at the same time. And then the voice on the ground was now louder and more triumphant, and the voices in the sky began to get fainter. Something else was happening. Far away and down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, very fresh, began to stir. The sky grew slowly and steadier, paler. You could see shapes of hills standing up, dark against it. The eastern sky changed from white to pink, from pink to gold, and the voice rose and rose till the air was shaking with it. And just as it had swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun rose. You could imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up, and its beams shot across the land as you could see for the first time what sort of land was around. The earth was many colors. They were fresh, hot, vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, where the voice came from, and you forgot everything else. It was a lion huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun with its mouth wide open in song and paced to and fro about that empty land. The song was now softer and more lilting, a gentle rippling music, and as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the hills like a wave. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the blades of grass, and soon there were other things besides grass. They were little spiky things that threw out dozens of arms. They covered these arms with green. There were hundreds of these things all around, trees. And there was a connection between the music and all the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up on the ridge about 100 yards away, it was connected with a series of long, deep, prolonged notes, which the lion had sung. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, primroses suddenly appeared in every direction. The song had once more changed and became far wilder. It made you want to shout. It made you want to rush at other people and either hug them or fight them. But what the song made you feel was nothing compared to what it was doing to the country. Can you imagine a stretch of grassy land bubbling like water in a pot? In all directions, it was swelling into humps. They were very different sizes, and they moved and swelled till they burst. And then they crumbled, and the earth that poured out of them, and from each hump there came out an animal. And now you could hardly hear the song because the song of the lion, there was so much cawing and cooing, crowing, braying, neighing and baying, barking, lowing, bleeding and trumpeting. And although you could no longer hear the lion, you could see it. It was so big and so bright, you couldn't take your eyes off it. The other animals did not appear to be afraid of it though. 
And at last he stood still, and the creatures came and stood in a wide circle around him. The beasts were now utterly silent, all their eyes fixed intensely upon the lion. For the first time that day there was complete silence, except for the noise of running water. The lion, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he was going to burn them up with his mere stare. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. From overhead and beyond the veil of blue sky which hid them, the stars sang again a pure, cold, difficult music. Every drop of blood in your body would have tingled. And then the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, Narnia, awake, love, think, and speak. For those of you who've never read anything by C.S. Lewis, this is from his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. This is the creation story of Narnia coming out, his allegory of of faith of our world, but through a magical land with animals that talk. And you might have heard the, the classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is the book that actually comes beforehand, The Magician's Nephew, and is the beautiful image of how C.S. Lewis interprets the creation story that we get. It expands on the idea of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I, I wanted to just read this to just open up your minds, my mind, to the, a poetic, artistic, beautiful, and deep representation of what the creation story is like, how it can impact us. And I'm a little regretful of actually opening up with C.S. Lewis because I have to follow that now. <laughs> but good morning. Welcome here. I'm super excited to talk with you all this morning here. I should come right up closer to get right into this peninsula. Uh, it's fun. I, if if you didn't uh, get totally soothed to sleep this morning, uh, you got hopefully a sense of creation and artistic language. That's what we're diving into the today because this, for the month and the next couple weeks coming up, we're in a series going through our confession of faith, the things that we believe in as a church. And uh, there's 24 articles of our confession of faith. We're not doing it all back to back, don't worry. That would take most of the year. We're doing six of them and we'll just keep going through this throughout the years. And uh, this morning, we're going through what uh, the Confession of Faith calls creation and divine providence. If that's a little heady and wordy for you, I've just called it the artist and his canvas. It's beautiful, right? It's nice. I, just all, I read C.S. Lewis, and I was like, I just want to preach this. It's just better. And here's the thing that's important to understand about confessions of faith, because frankly, the thing is, in our Western Canadian context, right, 21st century, we're trying to put words to this noble yet mysterious God to this scripture that's based on texts thousands and thousands of years old and translated and interpreted and discovered. And we're trying to put our best efforts and our best words to saying, what do we understand about a worldview of faith? And we're not all going to get there the exact same way. But what our confession of faith has said is this is what we have done our best understanding to say, this is how we see God interacting with us. This is how we see the power of the scripture impacting our lives. What's important is to remember that the confession of faith is not the Bible. It is a guide. It's helpful for us, but it's not scripture. Don't make that mistake. And I also want to just give you uh, another heads up, too, just a primer for the series. We're inviting you to ask questions because we're just scratching the surface on some of these topics, and they might 
bring up and prod some bigger questions, some stuff that just like, I, I wish you talked about this, Grant, and, and text them in. So we got the phone number back there. You can text them in or email the church, send a message if you're joining us online, Facebook or YouTube. And uh, yeah, just comment on there. We'll get them. We've got a few great questions so far. Uh, some that I'm excited to dive into, some that I am not looking forward to answering. Well, Michael's going to answer those ones. Uh, but yeah, so let's get into it. We're on Article 5, and what we're just going to do is read it section by section and talk about it and let this just speak into our lives, into our faith, hopefully help us understand God better in our context here. But the Confession of Faith starts off by saying this, We believe that God has created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and that God preserves and renews what has been made. All creation ultimately has its source outside of itself and belongs to the Creator. The world has been created good because God is good. Listen to that line. The world has been created good because God is good and provides all that is needed for life. That's the first intro and kind of summary piece for what we believe. And, and it's great, right? And how many of you here are reading that? You're like, sweet, okay, yeah, makes sense. Who's like, I, I, there's a lot of nice words there. It's churchy sounding. I don't totally get it. I wouldn't, like, if somebody was saying, hey, how do you believe the world came into being? Would you repeat that verbatim? You just have it in your pocket, you're ready to go. So the thing is, if this is your first time here, too, you're, you've come to a church service, and it's probably not that outrageous to think that we believe that God made everything, right? It, the whole world, our worldviews kind of split two ways and two positions on this idea of where did everything come from. Either everything came from nothing and it just was by happen chance, kind of neat, or everything came from something. We happen to say that was a creator God. Uh, other ideas of the world say that there was some force, some power, something that brought everything into being. And so like that's not monumental. That's not a crazy thing. We're just saying we understand from the Bible, it says right in the very beginning, there was God, the creator, artist. He said he made everything come into things intentionally. Um, but a few months ago, I actually got the pleasure to do a dialogue, kind of talking about that dialogue, that context. Was it God? Was it something else? What was God's role or how did that go? This morning, we're not talking about the how as much. We're actually asking a different question and is looking more at the artist. And kind of like, uh, right away, all that came to my mind was when I was in high school, my dad bought a welder and I got my hands on it. And the first thing I did was weld my sisters and my scooter together, not in any functional way. I was trying to make art and I found some more scrap metal and I created this massive blob of, the question that was asked, I think by my dad was why? Or what? More like, huh? That's the question we're asking a little bit here this morning. Not how as much as, as why and what a little bit. We're going to break this down. So going through ahead. So that was the opening for a confession of faith. The next section expands a bit more. We believe that the universe has been called into being as an expression of God's love and sovereign freedom alone. Cre creation witnesses to the eternal power and divine nature of God, who gives meaning and purpose to life, and who alone is worthy of worship and praise. See, the thing is, the Bible isn't the only 
ancient telling of creation. It's not the only idea of how the world came into being besides just happen chance. And in fact, actually, the land where the stories that would have been passed down and the authorship of the book of Genesis, where we get the creation account from, uh, it, it wasn't even the most common understanding of how the world came into being. Probably the most common is this thing called the Enuma Elish. You say that? Enuma Elish. We all learned a new word. Uh, the name of the Babylonian held creation story. This, and what this one is, uh, is how their de deity, Marduk, brought everything into being. And this would have been uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, the common thought in more like the Middle Eastern kind of land. And, and to quote says this, so this was what was kind of understood. Uh, Marduk saying, I will establish a savage, man shall be his name, and he shall be charged with the service of the gods so that they might be at ease. What we get here is a picture of, of uh, creation being simply a place where the gods are lazy and they want workers. And that's not even that uncommon. Where uh, So many other stories, the Mesopotamian Gilgamesh poem, which gives an account of man being created simply to fight other gods. We are just kind of soldiers or other ones that claim that the world is just a result of cosmic war. You have fallen gods and fallen pieces of land that became earth. It's no longer heaven, the separation, or even some where actually everything that's here is just the result of a, a long time hidden cosmic affair between gods. They tried to hide it and put it on earth. But in Genesis, we get a different story. And it's what this section of the confession of faith is really highlighting. We get this idea of words describing Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as an artist who created something out of passion and love, who created the world intentionally and methodically and rhythmically. Uh, we're not going to read the entire thing, but the first chapter of the book of Genesis starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it moves through of him creating light and darkness and air and land and sky and sea and filling up with the water and animals and foliage. And eventually, in this massive masterpiece he creates, at the very end, he places man into it. And I don't want to step too much into next week. We're going to expand on this more and take a look specifically at how humanity fits into all of that. But it's a very different picture of rather than everything being created to serve the gods, God made something all on his own for us. How do we dive into that? And how do we celebrate that? How do we take part of that? And how do we reflect that back to God? See, the thing is, it's not really hard to argue that the world is beautiful, right? Like who, who's looked outside today? Do you see a tree or grass? You can, like, you can go out here, you can look south and see Mount Sumas and the prairie flats and the river is gorgeous. And if you get the right angle, you can see Mount Baker. You go east, you can see the whole ridge of the Dudney Mountains and the Chiem Range. Uh, north, you get the amazing backside of Mission here. Don't bother with west, it's just Maple Ridge. I would have made fun of Abbotsford, but that's my, my stomping grounds. I can't. But it's, it's not hard to argue. In fact, actually, like, nobody has to tell you that it's good to be outside, that the world is beautiful. The wise King Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which was famous for, if you've heard, heard it ever before, it opens up with this summary saying, everything is meaningless. And he goes through the, the wise King Solomon thousands of years ago, how he had all the power and wealth and access to every pleasure in the world. And he's like, and nothing mattered except for beauty 
In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he recounts, he says that God has made everything beautiful in his time. This seems to be the one true, powerful focus, that there's beauty in the world. And see, what's incredible is there's, a, there's this art in nature. I find it actually fascinating how determined we are uh, just our world of innovation is to describe everything away, that everything has a purpose and a utility and a function. Like, who's a sci-fi buff out here? Any alien movie, I find it so interesting. We always create, when we come up with aliens, when people come up with aliens, it's not very, they're not beautiful. They're like mechanically ugly, robotic things. It's all utility, right? But then when you look in our world, we have this sense of beautiful nature. And all of a sudden, when we try to describe it, and then eventually some headline comes out. I remember reading about how uh, there's like a purple flower, and scientists are trying to say, why is it purple? And you know, like this one's red because of whatever, and this one reflects the sunlight because of this, but this purple flower is just purple. And it's big news that it's just because it's pretty. That's why. There's so much stuff in the world that's just pretty. Like, have you, I, okay, so I'm a bit biased, but have you seen a house cat before? <laughs> talking about cats. And they're whatever, right? Like, they could, they don't need to have colors. They, they're nearly useless animals as they are. They're fun. They hang around. I like cats. I like cats. We got two. But they're, they're pretty gorgeous looking, right? They got these fancy coats modeled with color and all these patterns. It's just for what function, right? They just, they look good on the couch where they spend their whole lives. This tells us something about God. This tells us something about, because when you look at art, you learn about the artist. And see, art is deeply connected to character and personality. It's deeply connected to emotions. And now it's true, and it's actually more and more common these days that often the whole art community is saying you, you build art out of tragedy and out of sorrow and pain and anger. And, you can, and it's true, there's incredible uh, works of writing and music and paintings that come out of all those. But beauty comes out of love. Beauty comes out of passion and joy. We have a beautiful world because of God's love. We have a beautiful world because of God's joy in it. Psalm 104 uh, is essentially this account of, of God taking passion and joy in the world. May the Lord take joy and pleasure in all that he has made. He delights in his works and of creation which reveal his glory. When you see a sunset and you feel moved you're celebrating the same way God is celebrating. You're saying, well done, God. This is amazing. You are amazing. Thank you for this. When you're excited about the sunrise and you're glorifying him, it gives God pleasure because it's the same thing. When we celebrate God for that, he is excited because he's also celebrating it. He's happy with his work. I wasn't happy with the scooter welding monstrosity I made. God was happy with the earth. He ended it all with saying it was very good when he wrapped up his creation account So that's the first section. God made everything beautiful. The next section we're going to hop into here. The Confession of Faith reads this. We acknowledge that God sustains creation in both continuity and change. We believe that God upholds order in creation and limits the forces of sin and evil for the sake of preserving and renewing humanity and the world. God also works to save human beings and the world from death and destruction and to overcome the forces of sin and evil. This is a fun part. Here's where we're going to get messy. 
Because there's a, there's a big implication here. It's a really good question. It actually is one of the questions that was texted in. So you get the advanced answer. In a couple weeks, Michael and I are going to do a bit of a Q&A sort of thing. But is God, did God just create a masterpiece and then step out and fill it up with gas and turn it over and let it run? Or is he still involved? Is he still creating? And we get a confession of faith like this. That's, it's easy to say, like, yeah, God's still involved, and he still he, he holds everything together, and he creates everything. You can say stuff like God knits together every life in the womb. But we need to wrestle with this because there's implications of that. Why, why then are some lives knit together in the womb to, to develop, and then all, we have miscarriages? Why does God hold the weather and the systems of the earth together, but then all of a sudden does he leave the tap on and the valley floods? Or he leaves the thermostat turned down too much and pipes burst because we get cold snaps and Arctic outflows and people die in this. Like, what's going on? Because if God's holding everything together and he's in charge and touching everything, why do we have this dissonance of beauty and pain and destruction? It's a worthwhile question to answer. And honestly, it's, it's a bit of a hole. I don't want to dig too deep. I'm going to, again, let Michael solve this all next week. He'll have the answer. Do we have free will? I, he has it. He knows. <laughs> a couple things how we can dive into this question. How is God holding everything together? The first is to say that we got to look at the Bible. We got to dive into the scriptures first. And we have here uh, Colossians chapter one with the Apostle Paul, who essentially helped us completely re understand everything Jesus came into the world to explain to us and help us understand about God. Because this was, we're not the first ones asking this question. People have asked this all the time Is God still involved? How is he holding everything together? And the Apostle Paul says this in reflecting God's purpose as creator. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In the words of Jesus himself, when people were asking, asking him, saying, like, aren't you supposed to take a rest, Jesus? Or, uh, he was confronted by some people, uh, religious leaders who were trying to trap him, and they challenged him on saying, aren't you supposed to stop working? This idea of Sabbath that they kind of misinterpreted. And Jesus said, my father, God the father, is always at work. He doesn't stop. He is working and holding everything together. He's at work to this very day, John five seventeen, And I, too, am working. The Bible gives us over and over these pictures of and confirmation that, yeah, God is still holding everything together. God created and is creating. God made a masterpiece, but is also making the masterpiece constantly. So the Bible confirms this idea. We still have to wrestle with it. That doesn't just fix everything and make it feel like it works. See, the second piece is, I think we actually have to understand the idea of both God's masterpiece of creation. He created everything out of nothing and give that such high value because if we actually say that every single action, every single thing that happens right now is still God's complete hitting the buttons and typing the keyboards and all the coding and everything in the matrix is all still God's complete handiwork or his, his interactions every single moment, we actually belittle his amazing creation the first time as well. See, that God created something 
incredibly long ago, and he created uh, biological reproduction. And that actually, that one creative act is still still going on and sustaining. That's what we have going on. It's a little bit in, in ways, and you know, this is not comparing God to Steve Jobs in the slightest, but did Steve Jobs make this iPad? Like, kind of, he didn't touch a single circuit in here, or turn a single screw. I don't think there's screws in this thing, actually, soldering the chips together. But the design behind what moved it forward still owes him credit and authorship. So what is the act that the Bible's talking about that God is still involved in, that's still happening, when he, it says he holds everything together? So we have this original creation, new from nothing, but then we have recreation. The Apostle Paul, again, in a letter uh, who's helping us understand what this means in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God. Recreation, restoration. The Sistine Chapel, famous work of art, especially for the ceiling that was painted by Michelangelo, uh, initially was, it took four years for him to paint. And it's been, up, uh, it's been kept up and restored, and the most recent major restoration work took 14 years to restore, just so it can look the same as how it was originally made. My father-in-law has been working on a Roadrunner restoration, making a 1969 Roadrunner. Uh, he's been working on it for uh, over a decade, and it's, it's going to be incredible. He's doing a, a thing called making a numbers-matching restoration, which essentially means an incredible amount of work to make it come out exactly like it rolled off the line. But the thing is, this thing is going to come out even better than it ever did, and not just because Chrysler you know, is their own handiwork, but because of the sweat and hours of passion poured into how much work it takes to restore and recreate something, rebuilding it. See, we actually get a really powerful image of what this means, original creation and beauty, reflection of God's nature, his love, his beauty, his joy, and what re restoration looks like in our world through Jesus. Because, so... The big picture, thousands of years ago, long, uh, Jesus comes onto the scene. And now this is happening. We have, we have a rigid Genesis, the creation story, right? All that happens. God creates everything. We have people come onto the scene. God's interacting with people. And you go on for thousands of years. And they're asking the same questions. Is God still present? Is he still working on his masterpiece? Is it just set and go and the spring's ticking? Is everything still beautiful? And then Jesus comes onto the scene. God with us. God and man walking among us. So the artist is here now among us. That's what the gospels are in the New Testament is who we're following. Christianity is based around Jesus, God incarnate. And the thing is, this is now the, the original author of beauty and intricacy. You'd think Jesus must have been an absolute embodiment of art and awe, of beauty and wonder. But that's not what happened. See, this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which happened hundreds of years before Jesus even came, said this about Jesus. Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root of, out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. 
He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. In all of Jesus' ministry, for the majority of the three years his disciples were with him, they didn't recognize beauty in Jesus. They didn't recognize wonder and awe in Jesus. In fact, in his hometown, Jesus was actually ridiculed as, and people would tell him, stop saying these things. You're not that special. You're the son of a carpenter. You're nobody. His disciples, for the most part, they, he was a very wise teacher worth following. He was their rabbi. They didn't see the beauty of the art of the world all around him, all around them. That is until Jesus was made, by our standards, ugly, brutally beaten, hung up on a cross, completely destroyed. All, any of the art that was present in him was completely destroyed. He was killed on the cross, but then three days later, completely restored. He was rebuilt, renewed, recreated. And what's fascinating is this is the moment. Even the authors of the Gospels, John, the author of the Gospel, who we've been quoting here a little bit, for the time he was with Jesus, didn't recognize much about Jesus, but then he writes the gospel of Jesus as this incredible beauty and wonder, this work of art. After the resurrection, Jesus was made into something different and they could see the beauty of God in Jesus. If uh, Doubting Thomas, you've heard this. In fact, only believed and only saw the power of Jesus when he saw his scars. It's so fascinating that Jesus would even choose to keep his scars, right? Because surely if you can overcome death, you can do plastic surgery. He kept his scars. And I think Jesus did this not, not just to show that beauty can come out of pain and out of brokenness, but I think to show us that God creates beauty in our brokenness. God creates beauty in our world that is fallen, in our world that has entropy and decay that the scars Jesus had showed and brought out true beauty. God, God created a masterpiece with us in it and it's been contaminated by sin. And so God continues to create through painstaking work of restoration and renewal, recreation, what his ultimate design is, his true masterpiece, which comes through salvation. There's this form of art, if you've ever heard of it, called kintsugi art. Have you heard of that before? It's beautiful. It takes pottery and you take damaged and cracked pottery and it's this Japanese art form where then they will melt precious metals into all the cracks and crevices. And it's this gorgeous, valuable, expensive art that only comes out of something that's broken. The beauty comes out of something that is damaged. That's where it comes from. Only a great artist can make scars the embodiment of beauty. So what we're actually called to in all of this, God's involvement of working in our world still, of being present, of sustaining through recreating, through restoring and keeping his artwork up and running and working is to trust in him, to trust that he preserves us, to trust that he renews us, to trust that he works in our lives. Like the promise he made to Noah that he'll also prevent full destruction from happening to us. That's the promise that Jesus came and brought, that we, we live in a world where we feel like you live, you decay, and death is the end. And Jesus says, that's not what you were made for. That's not what the garden was made for. That's not what Genesis was made for. So that brings us to the last section of our confession of faith, this idea of trust. 
We therefore are called to respect the natural order of creation and to entrust ourselves to God's care and keeping. Whether in adversity or in plenty, neither the work of human hands nor the forces of the natural world around us nor the power of the nations which we live are worthy of the trust and honor due to the creator on whom they depend. I heard a pastor once say that he responded to a question that was brought up in an interview uh, of somebody who, uh, a skeptic, who essentially asked, what is it, what is it like what changed for you when you started to believe in God? And this pastor was somebody who grew up not believing and in his adult life came to faith. And he said, so what changed? Like, what did it feel like to start believing in God? What changed in, in your life? Did it feel different? And what was awesome, they said, no. It didn't feel different, but it looked different. I saw everything differently because I saw everything as art created by God. But not only that, I saw everything as something I trusted God to uphold and to protect. I saw myself and I saw other people as something God loved, as something that God would also and could also restore. There's an aspect of the creation story and of seeing the world as art as needing to trust God, as needing to trust that he does follow through. Uh, again, the words from Jesus when he's really driving this home for us tells us this in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, even the purple ones? They spin, they do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is a call for trust. It's not a promise of saying you're all going to be wealthy and loaded and have a giant wardrobe of everything. It's saying God knows what you need. God knows the stuff that you need to be part of his masterpiece. We need to be open and vulnerable to trust that. And here's how we do that, because the thing is, it, it's not easy. It's not natural. It's actually quite counterintuitive to trust in God for those basics of our lives. The first part, so what I think we can do, I have three, three applications we could take from this this morning. The first is going back again to the idea of beauty. We need to see the world as beauty again. And so maybe some of you here, you, you're there, you see it, like the world is beautiful, you see God in creation, you see God in other people, even the people who drive you nuts, the people who cut you off when you're trying to get to church on time, for the few of you who do that. that you see the beauty around us. But, and if you're like me, and I, I try to have that as a driving passion in my life, it's not always there. I, it takes reminding. And the easiest way to remind yourself of the beauty is to take a step back and to have some humility in your life. 
See, again, going back to that prophecy where Isaiah said nobody would see beauty in Jesus, I wonder if that was a prophecy less about Jesus and more about us, that we can actually lose the ability to see beauty, that we can actually lose the ability to see God as an artist who creates out of passion and love. And I think that happens when we focus in on us and our ability. See, this fascinating mystery is that God created us also with the ability to create and to innovate with, with wisdom and cleverness. And we get into this mindset that we can do everything. We can make everything. And you start seeing the world as just something for us to conquer and for something to us to improve. And everything about our life suddenly becomes what we have done to invest and to build it up better. And you start losing the sense of beauty because all you can see is the projects and the things that you can't fix. You need to maybe take a step back of humility and say, I'm not all that. I'm just part of the masterpiece. I'm just one piece in the puzzle. I am not the greatest thing on this planet. God is. And we can start seeing beauty again. Another one is to worship boldly. This is what drives me so much because appreciating, like we saw in that psalm, appreciating the beauty and reflecting God back to him and to others around us as agents of being pieces of this creation. See, the thing is, this whole creation idea, we weren't just made as spectators. We weren't made as uh, consumers for it. We were made as participants in it. And what is incredible is God said if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. That this whole masterpiece doesn't actually need us, but he wants us in it. We have this opportunity to worship God boldly and loudly. The stuff we do here, and again, worship is so closely connected with art, the way creation is so closely connected with art, these emotional, passionate things. We do that a lot through music. It's not exclusively music, the way we worship. It's through words, it's through thought, it's through actions, it's through visuals. I, I've been talking a lot about just the beauty of stuff through sight. I haven't even talked about tastes and aromas and textures and feelings. There's a lot more to art than just what we see. But we sing songs that celebrate who God is. And I think at times we get a little bit too habitual. Our worship, whether it's here on Sunday mornings, whether it's just in our life, is a routine, is a discipline. It's something that we just tick off the box. I worshipped. Rather than becoming vulnerable and maybe being a little weird, Maybe our worship needs to be a bit weirder here. All together, on your own. Here's what I actually think is one of the most beautiful things. Uh, because God created us creative and emotional with the ability to create art. And we're not, we're not on the same scale as God whatsoever. We can do our best, right? We're not here trying to drive for perfection singing music. We're not trying to drive for perfection with the stuff we do with our hands. We try to do good. But one of the things that gives me so much joy is when my daughter, who's two, tries to emulate the things that I'm passionate about, right? And she already has seen that I'm passionate about music and I'm passionate about car stuff. And she, she'll use her little building blocks and like, Daddy, I made a guitar. Or she tries singing a song. So she's not good at it. But man, it fills my heart so much when I see her try. And I can only imagine that is God's reflection of us worshiping. Is he doesn't want to see us 
just wait until we're, we get the perfect thing or whatever. Here, God, I, I did the thing. It's still garbage to, compared to him, but he's like, just try. I love that. You're trying to reflect that creative ability in you. You're trying to reflect that, that beauty of the work, the masterpiece back to me. Oh man, that must give him such joy. We can worship boldly. Uh, in another Psalm, King David uh, wrote in Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this thing only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. All King David won. He was the ruler of Israel for so long. He was a conqueror in military. He was powerful. And the one thing he wanted, he said, even if this took my life, I just want to see God's beauty. That's what drove him. I think too in prayer, we can start praying like God is active. I fall into a trap often where I convince myself to pray small prayers and worship small worship as if God is so far away, I just do this out of habit. I just pray so I tick off the box, but God's not really gonna change anything. How often do we say, God, please heal so-and-so by using the doctors to prescribe the right medicine that'll alleviate a symptom while they slowly still decline into what's inevitable because of the diagnostics? Or do we pray like God still performs miracles because he's still active and involved, that God still restores and renews, amen? Can we pray that way? Can we pray like, God, I know that you still have a choice in all this, God, you still have a plan I can't understand, but please heal. God, please restore. God, please deliver this nation from oppression, wherever it is, big prayers. Can we actually pray like we believe God is still involved? I think that's also testimony for all those around us. Some of us need to put our reliance back on God and not on the natural world and not just use God as an insurance policy. And lastly, we can value creation. And I'm not gonna go heavy on this. I'm not saying, I know some of you here are just like, Grant, I don't care about trees. I am not a tree-hugging hippie. I am not gonna be marching on the whatever. There's no way I'm ever driving a Prius. I'm not saying that. Uh, and, oh, obviously, there's some of you driving cars that just, it's, it's 2024, come on. We need less Dodges. What I am saying is some of us need a softer approach to your impact on the world, on creation. And it's, I don't know myself, even I still work on how far to push environmentalistic efforts, especially as things become hyper-politicized. But some of us do have a mindset, and unfortunately the church has over centuries created a mindset of almost disdain or contempt for the natural world. This is all gonna burn up anyways, who cares? That's not what we get out of the Bible. That's not what we get in the creation story. And it's especially not a reflection of how Jesus lived his life. This masterpiece that we're living in has value. And it is good because God said it is good. It is beautiful because God created out of love and beauty. And it's worth having a care and a love for it. I'm just gonna invite the worship team back up here. We're gonna end off singing a song that just really pulls all of this together. But what I also wanna to say to you with this idea of beauty is to see beauty in yourself because God does. He sees the scars and the past and the pain and the trauma 
But that restorative work that gives Jesus so much delight and presence in your life gives God passion and pleasure. So maybe you're here this morning and it's kind of just like every Sunday morning. Maybe you've been doing it for years and decades. You go to church on Sundays because it's part of a routine and rhythm. But I wonder, have you actually found Jesus to be beautiful? Have you found God and the world around you to feel to be beautiful? See, I know I wrestled myself with this for quite a long time. I, I had the sense like, you know what, this makes sense. This book, I get it, it makes sense. There's things that line up, I like it. This works with my life. But it wasn't well into my adult years until I actually saw beauty and I actually saw emotional connections that demanded vulnerability and humility from me. And now this morning, I get to share an invitation to you, knowing that I, I get to experience and I see this beauty in the world. I want you to as well. That's the invitation that Jesus offers all of us, is to come with him. And what it takes is, a, again, a humility, saying, I don't, I don't know everything, God. But what I do want to do is surrender myself, my own will, my own desires, my own demands in my life, and see what you've got for me. You get the chance to show people and be that reflection. I get to do that right now. And if maybe you're here, you're saying, yeah, I get this. I agree with this. Amen. I love it. You might be that only image and reflection of beauty for somebody in your life. You might be that only chance of seeing and showing beauty in their life, the beauty that God sees in them too. So we're just going to sing through a song. We're going to wrap up. Reflect on the words if you've never heard this song. If you have, worship out boldly, loudly. Let yourself hit the floor with your knees. Cry, sing out, sit there straight, listening to the words, however it is. But let yourself worship God through this song. Thank you, team.